It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Sam about her experiences living with multiple sclerosis. Sam was diagnosed with MS when she was just 19 years old. She was originally diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS, which is the most common form of the disease. But this past January, her diagnosis was actually changed to active secondary progressive MS. As Sam will tell us, multiple sclerosis essentially occurs when the immune system thinks that the nervous system is an invader and tries to attack it. This causes lesions in the brain to form, which are visible through an MRI. The symptom picture for MS varies widely from person to person. And during the episode today, Sam will walk us through all the different types of MS and talk about the impact of having her own diagnosis change. Sam is an amazing MS advocate, someone that I'm very familiar with through social media, and she's someone that I've wanted to talk to on the show for a long time. She did an amazing job telling us about her disease, talking us through her history with the disease, discussing the mental health toll, the different medications, and the process of making changes to her lifestyle to better accommodate this disease. We touched on the fact that throughout Sam's journey, there have been moments where she felt like a burden to her friends and family because of all the times that her disease not only affected herself, but those around her. And I think that this is something that is so important to talk about with chronic illness and with disability, finding ways to work through these feelings, because I think a lot of us, if not all of us, feel that way sometimes. I'm thrilled to have Sam on the show today. This is a very educational episode, very heartfelt story, and so useful to anyone out there living through something similar. I'm so grateful that Sam came on the show, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. Of course, we are back this week. Last week, I took a week off because there's just so much happening in my life that I really just needed a little extra time. Things didn't quite go as planned. (laughs) I did get COVID for the first time ever. I'm still testing very faintly positive, but I'm almost through COVID. It came at a very inopportune moment in my life, and I'm actually going to tell you all about it next week. Uh, you know, I've been teasing this all month, but Andy and I are going to sit down and do an update episode to tell you about what's going on, because there's just so much happening in my life. I just really need to take a whole episode and tell you all about it. So that's finally going to happen next week. As I'm recording this intro, my disability hearing is actually tomorrow tomorrow morning, and I am terrified. <laughs> it's so nerve-wracking. I just, you know, I spoke with my lawyer, and he's he's great. I really feel good about the person who's representing me, and my hearing is tomorrow morning. So, when this podcast comes out, I will have had my hearing. Uh, yeah, so I'll let you know how that goes next week. I have a very important doctor's appointment on Friday, uh, and I want to tell you about having COVID and some other stuff that has been going on that I have not been uh, sharing yet on the podcast, just because I'm sort of collecting everything to, to do one big episode. And that's happening next week. Um, oh boy, it's a lot. <laughs> I have to thank all of you who listen to this podcast. It means so much to me to have people listening and engaging with the stories that we share here on this show. And we definitely need your support to keep this podcast going as long as possible. There's several great ways to support the show. That includes leaving us positive rating and reviews on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on, particularly the big ones like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Having a lot of positive ratings and reviews on those platforms is extremely helpful to help us reach new listeners. You can support the show financially through Patreon with monthly financial contributions patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast if you'd like to learn more. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting the show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. You can also support the show by signing up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. Head to that link and sign up. You are eligible to sign up if you have a diagnosis of any kind or if you are a caregiver. And if they have a research study or survey that fits your situation, you will be paid an average of $120 per hour for your time to participate. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, all at Major Pain Podcast. That's another great way to support the show. If you have questions or comments about any of our episodes that you'd like to share, you can email me, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a comment on our website, majorpainpodcast.com. I'll remind you as always that my guest and I are not medical professionals, so please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our amazing episode with Sam Salvaggio about multiple sclerosis. 
Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really great to meet you. I've been watching your TikToks for at least a year, maybe two years now. So it's really cool to get to see you and, and talk to you today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, well, let's get to know you a little bit. So Sam, why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, I am 37 years old. I live in North Carolina. Um, I live on 10 acres. And so we have a large garden and I do a lot of gardening for my mental health. And then um, other hobbies include like reading and cooking, obviously, because there's plenty of food that we're growing. Um, and I have two cats that are like my world, along with my husband, obviously. <laughs> um, and that's kind of it. I, I spend a lot of my time um, either reading or gardening <laughs> or working out. That would be the other big thing I do is a lot of like uh, fitness and strength training just to try to keep my body as agile as possible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. These are all interests of mine as well. Um, we just moved to a house with some yard space and I'm learning to garden a little bit, which is exciting. And I also, I've been reading a ton recently. Um, like with my chronic illness journey, I couldn't read for a long time because the brain fog was too bad. And now yeah. I'm doing a little better and I'm just devouring books. So I have to ask, what, what sort of things do you read? What's your genre of choice? Um, I read a lot of nonfiction. I tend to get really sucked up in fiction and will like stay up all night reading and <laughs> I just can't. So I just stay away from it altogether. Um, so the books I'm reading now, they're not like the most exciting thing, but necessary, like one's on burnout and one's on CPTSD. So <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> not yeah. very like happy books, but informative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Well, I've... You know, like I said, I've been watching your TikToks for a while and I've seen a lot of your content around, you know, chronic illness and fitness. And I just love what you're doing and such important advocacy. And I'm really excited to learn more about you and your story. So let's jump into it. Sam, what is your major pain? My major pain is multiple sclerosis. Um, I've had it since I was 19, so 17 years. Wow. Um, initially, yeah. Wow. <laughs> initially, I was diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS. And then this past January, right after my 17-year anniversary, I uh, changed to active secondary progressive MS. Wow. So that's a little a huge, bit of a shift. That's a huge shift. Um, yeah. I, tell us a bit about the, the definition of these different types of MS. And then I'm so curious to hear about that transition and what that must have been like. Yeah. Um, so relaxing remitting is the most common kind. About 85% of people are diagnosed with that kind uh, initially. And um, it's characterized by relapses and then remissions, like the name says. So you have periods where like your disability levels will really increase and your function and everything will be changed significantly like during a relapse. And then you'll return close to baseline or baseline for a period of time. And then you may have another relapse. Um, the medicines that are available today are making it, the relapses fewer and far between. Mm. And so, um, it's making living with MS a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, that seems weird to say it that way, but it does definitely help. Um, and then active secondary progressive is basically, there's debate on how many people will change from relapsing remitting to secondary progressive, but it's basically the accumulation of like all the damage that you've accrued as a relapsing remitting and coupled with like age and you getting older and your body just not functioning as well and kind of starting to degenerate as everyone's body does when they get older. But those areas that were damaged in the past are weaker points and they like degenerate quicker. Hmm. And so you'll end up having more symptoms on a daily basis and you just have like less wiggle room like compared to relaxing remitting. And then, I mean, to make it more complicated, <laughs> secondary progressive, you can still have relapses plus dealing with like the neurodegeneration and added symptoms on the daily basis. 
or you can just deal with um, the neurodegeneration piece and not have relapses. Wow. Um, I have relapses. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So complicated. Thank you for it's sharing very that complicated. With us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So um, my understand we've had we've done one episode about MS in the past. Uh, it was actually with my college girlfriend Lauren, who was uh -huh. diagnosed with MS while we were dating, and she was diagnosed around the same time. So I do have some familiarity with this disease that it is, you know, lesions in the brain that can cause functional symptoms. But I'd love to hear, you know, what for, for our listeners who are maybe less familiar, what are the basics of MS? What is multiple sclerosis? Yeah, I realized I should have said that one first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was so I mean, I was so interested to jump in there with you. But, you know, let's cover our bases here. Yeah. Uh, so basically your immune system gets the incorrect signal that your nervous system is like an invader mm. and needs to be destroyed. So your nervous system, your central nervous system consists, consists of your brain, spine, and optic nerve. And those are the areas that are affected with MS. So your immune system gets the signal like attacks somewhere in the brain, spinal cord, or optic nerve and then depending on where it attacks and what that area controls is what you're going to have like outward symptoms of like optic nerve obviously is like vision and then i mean your brain and spinal cord control everything so the range of symptoms that one can experience like daily and with relapses is just vast and it's yeah. called the snowflake disease because everyone's different and there's really like no two cases that are similar. Yeah, totally. What is the feeling of knowing you have one type of MS and then being told you have a different type? Uh, I mean, that must really pull the rug out from under you. It was interesting. I wasn't, <laughs> I guess interesting is a nice way of saying it. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't like super familiar with the transition and like the possibility of that from relapsing remitting to secondary progressive. Um, I didn't become aware of it until like five years ago or so. Um, and I knew some people did transition and I had been experiencing like progression in that I couldn't do the same things that I could do before, but it wasn't like a relapse. It was just, it was more like nuance, like, oh, last year I could do this, but this year I can't do that, like that type of thing. So I had already been like mentally and physically dealing with that for about two years before the diagnosis changed. But that said, like when the diagnosis changed, I definitely went through like an entire grieving period and a lot of emotions because I realized like I had relapsed and remitting for 17 years and I felt so like, comfortable in that diagnosis and like it's like oh i get my body like i've i've learned like what my triggers are and how i can kind of help myself feel better day to day and then when the diagnosis shifted and i didn't have as much like wiggle room and symptoms would happen more and it was really like negatively affecting my life i had to just like go through that whole grieving process and getting reacquainted to my body again and I'm sure that you had to go through that grieving process at 19 years old as well. All and, the time. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, these, these illnesses, we have to integrate them into our identity to survive. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you either fight against your illness, which is fighting against yourself, or you learn to integrate it, learn to embrace it and, and, you know, make it a piece of who you are, you know, hopefully yeah. not. Uh, the entirety of who you are, because that can be very unhealthy, but to deny it and to not integrate it is also unhealthy. There's this sweet spot in the middle <laughs> of, totally. you know, pulling this thing into yourself and saying, okay, I have this, this is part of me and I'm going to work with it. You know, I, I'm someone who spent most of my life undiagnosed and I'm just trying okay. to imagine like switching the diagnosis after, you know, almost yeah. like 20 years. That's like right. really complicated. I can't even imagine that feeling. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it was now reflecting back on it. I, it seems like it was a crazier time than I think I even like perceived. 
So. Yeah. <laughs> and you said that was just last January that this happened? Yeah. So it was like seven, eight months ago. Yeah. yeah we January are, 2023. Yeah. We're in August It was August, a Friday August the right 13th, now. actually. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, great. I'll never forget that day. <laughs> yeah. How many types of MS are there? Is there like a, a, you said secondary progressive. Is there a primary progressive? Yes. Yeah. So there's a primary progressive and that one is more um, like you have relapses, but you don't really recover. And so you accumulate disability mm. and issues with functioning like very, very quickly. Wow. And it's more rare in that like 10 to 15 percent of people are diagnosed with it. But it's definitely more impactful, like initially. OK, quickly. yeah. Yeah. So like whatever damage you accrue is going to stay and you may accrue more damage over time. Yeah. 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 And you accrue it quickly. Like yeah. there's think even that the disease process is a little bit different um, than relapse and remitting. And so they're definitely still learning about primary progressive. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. And then there's also clinically isolated syndrome, which is like, the step before relapsing, remitting. And it's mm. basically like you've had an issue that looks like a relapse or we see a lesion, but we're not 100% convinced that you have MS. Like it may still be able to be other things. So let's just like wait and see what happens. And then we'll talk about it if you have another problem. Okay. So essentially like four different classes of MS. Yeah, there's... <laughs> There's one other that <laughs> is very rare. Yeah. That's why I was going to leave it out. And then I was like, well, the, but the people that have it won't be happy. Uh, it's, I'm, and I'm not even positive on the pronunciation. I think it's tumefactive MS. And it basically, it's much different. And it acts more like a brain tumor, like has symptoms like that. Hmm. Um, I don't know a ton about it. Uh, I actually have it on my list of videos to make for TikTok, mm. um, and I have it on my research list. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because something being rare means that there are people that have it, and yeah. for every individual, you know, like whatever disease you have is that thing that you have to integrate into your life, and it matters a lot. And I've exp experienced this personally of doctors saying, well, this disease is rare, so we're not even going to worry about it or check mm -hmm. for it during my diagnostic journey. And it's like, but if I have that disease, we only have to get it right once. You know, there's only one yeah. disease that I need to be diagnosed with, hopefully. Um, so to not to not look at all the options is ridiculous. And, you know, so I you know, this podcast is all about shining light on these rare things. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, yeah. So to talk me through your journey of diagnosis. I mean, 19 is so young to be diagnosed. When did you first start experiencing symptoms? So some people, a lot of people will experience these like weird, vague symptoms, like on and off for years and yeah. not be able to get any answers. Um, so in that regard, like I didn't go through that period. Um, and I guess I, I was lucky or something in that it came on like extremely suddenly. Like I was always really healthy, uh, you know, like healthy in quotes um, as a child and like adolescent. And then um, it, there was like a 24 hour period where like I woke up one day to go to an Ohio State football game. So I went to Ohio State and they're a big football school. So they would start like tailgating and stuff very early in the morning, like 8 a.m. And so I met some friends like that morning and I felt off, but it was like, okay, it's 8 a.m. on a Saturday. Like I was out the night before, like maybe just a little woozy, like from that. Um, and then as the day progressed, it was like a fall in Ohio. So it was cold. And I had on jeans and a t-shirt and like I sweat, like sweated through my entire outfit and mm. it like looked like I had been in a shower mm. and I still was feeling like kind of woozy and off. I don't, it felt like, like you're like operating in like molasses or something, mm. like just slow. Yeah. Um, and I went home after the game because I was like, I think I need to rest. Like the sweating thing is like really weird. <laughs> And then when I woke up, I, right, like, so <laughs> <Yeah>. oblivious. 
Um, and I slept for 20 hours. So that was like the first, like, hmm, that's weird. And then when I woke up, uh, I could only, like, my vision was double. So I couldn't really see. And then I couldn't use my um, dominant hand, my right hand. Um, and then my face was numb. And I had a little bit of issue walking and, like, coordinating my body. And so I called my friend and we went to, like, the ER and... They thought it was a few different things initially, but then they did an MRI and um, saw where the lesions were located and that it looked very characteristic for MS. Mm. Um, yeah. And at that time, my parent, by the time they told us that, like my parents had come down to OSU because we only lived a few hours away and they were like, well, if it is, that's fine. But like, we're going to go home. So sign out against medical advice and we're going home and we'll go to a neurologist there. Um, and you know, like I was like 19 and confused and like, couldn't function by myself. Like it was like, I couldn't even like use my hands to like open a door or anything. And it, walking was hard. So it was like, okay, fine. So we did that. And then we went to a neurologist, uh, in Cleveland, which is where I was from. And um, they did a spinal tap and like did more tests. I think it was an evoked potentials test um, and a few other things and like confirmed the diagnosis then. Hmm. And I started medicine like shortly after that. And it took me like, took a month for my vision to come back. And it came back on Christmas Day, which was like super weird. You just bounced then, from holiday to holiday. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was like what a nice gift. Um, yeah. And then, <laughs> then uh, from Friday the thirteenth to Christmas Day. Right? Yeah, it's like all marked by all these random holidays. Yeah. Uh, um, and then let's see. I ended up going back to school like for the next quarter, um, but it took me a good like eight months to fully level out and find a baseline with MS. And then um, it was just really hard being in college and having this new illness and going through this like crazy experience and kind of returning back to normal in the sense that people wouldn't know I had MS by looking at me and then having to deal with that, but then having to be around a bunch of peers that have no idea and are more concerned with like going out and all that. So mm. it definitely shifted my college experience and perspective a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. And th this is actually such an interesting topic to me as someone else who has bounced back and forth from having an invisible illness to something that's very obvious and then back to invisible again. Mm -hmm. um, this feeling of, of wanting other people to get you and to see you in your totality and to know what you are fighting through to even show up on a, on any given day, but then also wanting nobody to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and kind of going back and forth from these feelings of like, wow, you know, these people don't understand me and they don't know what I've been through and I want them to, but also I'm horrified for anyone to find out that I have this, you know, permanent illness because they might judge me differently. Did you, have some of those feelings as well of like kind of wanting oh, yeah. to be seen, but also wanting to be invisible. Yeah, definitely. And then I, all, I mean, I had a bunch of feelings too, like all those conflicting ones you mentioned. And then also ones where it's like, you know, just beating myself up for something that's completely outside of my control. Mm. Like I'm sitting here thinking I'm like a burden and I'm ashamed of what's mm. going on and no one understands, which just must, must mean that it's wrong and I'm wrong. Wow. And it was, yeah, it, it was a lot. And that was actually the first time I like started seeing a therapist and started like antidepressants because dealing with all that in college was just so difficult and they don't really teach you like how to navigate that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, this is massively important stuff. You know, it, looking back on our histories with chronic illness and like getting to a point where we learn how to manage it's easy to forget the turmoil <laughs> and like the yeah. the utter turmoil of getting to that point where you mm -hmm. get so angry like why did this happen to me and it feels so unfair and you try to ignore it and deny it and 
push it away. And I know I went through phases where I was maybe partying a little bit harder because it was easier to yeah. ignore. Um, mm -hmm. But those Same. things catch up with you and take a toll. And, you know, I mean, I think most of us with chronic illness end up having to live pretty clean lifestyles just to keep the disease as uh, stable as possible. Um, so I'm so curious to hear what that was like for you, you know, from being 19, were you already getting into partying before this started? And did it kind oh, of yeah. like <laughs> change, you know, change your perspective on how you were treating your body at that young of an age? Not yet. Sounds right. That sounds right. I tried to keep up like with people for mm, a while. Yeah, yeah, I totally. Wanted, I didn't want to be the problem. Um, and I didn't want to be like the odd one that wasn't, you know, whatever, like doing what everyone else was doing. Like I just wasn't comfortable enough doing that. So there were a lot of times where like, I would try to like go out or, you know, like meet friends at a bar or something. And like, after I was 21 and, um, <laughs> like it just, I would end up like leaving at like midnight or something and crying like in the cab because that was a long time ago on the way home because like, I just couldn't keep up with people. And I was so tired all the time and just felt so different. And so like, I don't want to say unworthy, but like, just like a burden and just yeah. wrong. And so it took a long time. After college, I got more into eating healthy at least. And that affected like my fatigue and how I felt on a daily basis. And that like was so profound that it um, made me want to go to get my education in nutrition. So I got a master's in nutrition. Mm. Um, and then after that, I just kind of, I started working out more and like really started exercising and eating well and managing my stress and like getting sleep and doing all the things you have to do. Cause after so many years with MS, it was just like, I needed less things to make my life that make my life hard. So yeah. like, I'm not going to work against myself and like go drink a lot or get two hours of sleep. Like I need to get enough sleep. I need to not be drinking that much. Like those are the things that like make me feel better. And MS is already like making it challenging enough and I don't need to add more baggage onto that. Um, and I just kept doing that for years and years and years until uh, like until it became a habit. It just takes such a long time. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you know, I just caught up with a friend from uh, college a couple of days ago and you know, the person that like the first time I got sick drinking, he was the one pouring the shots, you oh, know, yeah. a good friend from college. And we definitely would drink a lot together and, um, you know, have some wild experiences together. And he is was just telling me about like, you know, I'm not drinking anymore at all. And, you know, we all kind of have to get there eventually. Uh, yeah. Get to the point where like you got to, you know, when you get to be in your 40s, you know, I'm all I'm 38. We're almost the same age. Um, oh, okay. When you get to late 30s, early 40s, like you really kind of have to make some decisions about like, or, or even earlier, you know, <laughs> you got to treat your body well. Um, and yeah. even without a chronic illness, a lot of people have to get there. But uh, with something kind of weighing on your body that you need to learn to live with when it happens at such an early age, it's just so I think it's just so much harder to kind of wrap your brain around that when you're that young. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, it feels like you got something stolen from you, mm. <laughs> like early on, because I, I mean, that was always a feeling I had for a long time was like, why is it? Why do I have to deal with this? Why does anyone have to deal with it? Like, why is my college years and like early adult years that are supposed to be so fun, like riddled with all this like MS stuff that is the opposite of fun? Um but yeah, yeah, you definitely need to like work through all that and get get to a healthier place. Yeah. What was the periodic nature of your relapses and remitting periods during this, you know, your early 20s? How often were you having relapses? So everyone is different, right? Like I know a lot of people that haven't had relapses in like 15 years wow. or more. Yeah. And so I like saying that because I don't want to make anyone, you know, like 
think that my journey is their journey with MS. But for me, like it averaged about a relapse a year. Mm. None of them were as severe as my first relapse. The second relapse was the next most disabling because I had optic neuritis, so I couldn't see very well. And at the time I was like, it was my senior year of college. And so there was a lot of like studying and stuff. And it's really hard to do that when you only have like one eye. (laughs) And then um, the other relapses were like a definite change in function, but for the most part, I could still like major things were still intact, like walking was still okay, or like, I was able to like, you know, write or something like that. Um, Where it didn't affect my life as much. It was just like, okay, I need to slow down and adjust and like get back to normal here. My last relapse one in January that shifted the diagnosis, diagnoses uh, was the third worst one, because I went from like being able to walk fine and being mobile and, you know, like doing my own thing to like not really being able to do much or walk um, for a good like five weeks. I mean, it just completely shifted like anything I was able to do. So I just like life stopped for like five weeks. Um, But prior to that, I hadn't had anything crazy severe since 2007, 2008. Wow. Like I had these like relapses still yeah. that were like impactful, but yeah. not terrible. Yeah. And you just reminded me of something I wanted to say when you were talking about MS affecting your optic nerve. Um, we were talking about forms of MS. We, we have mm-hmm. done a great episode of the podcast about neuromyelitis optica, which is a uh, yeah. related disease, which is sister, like, yeah. yeah, it's like a sister disease. It's uh, in, in your spine. Um, mm-hmm. and optic nerve, but not necessarily in the brain where you have lesions. Yeah. Um, yeah, great episode with Summer early on in the podcast, if anyone is interested to learn about that. Okay, so you're having like pretty regular flare-ups that are happening, you know, maybe about once a year, but nothing super disabling for a long, long time. Um, and then yeah. you're, uh, I guess, about 36 years old, and then suddenly you're uh, mobility just kind of goes away very suddenly and you're dealing with five weeks of that. How does that affect your life outside of just your health? I mean, relationships, work, you know, when you never know what's going to happen with your body, you kind of have to live a life that accommodates that. But if it mm-hmm. hasn't happened like that before, then you're not necessarily ready to accommodate that and it can kind of bring things to a crashing halt. Yeah. I mean, so this past relapse was a little bit unique in that I work for myself now. Mm. And so that was like a blessing and a curse because like I, you know, could stop working whenever. But that also meant that like there was no one else doing the work. Um, And so things just didn't get done as much as they as much as I would have wanted. But you know, like prior to that, any relapses I had, it was always like filing for short-term disability and doing that Mm. and that route. I don't know which is better. Like, I think both are equally challenging in different ways. Um, And so it affected my work like more recently, just in that I couldn't do as much. And I am really hard on myself when like most people are when they can't get as much work done or they're not as productive. And so that was hard, like mentally also, cause I enjoy what I do and I couldn't do it. And so it, that was frustrating. Um, relationship wise, it was challenging. My husband and I have been together since right after I was diagnosed. And oh, so wow. he's been around for like 17 years. Um, and understands like the ups and downs of it. I, I think for me, you know, like you're going through this crisis and you're, you kind of go into like survival mode. So I was in that mindset, but for him, he's like sitting and watching his wife's like mobility decline and like, you know, not being able to like walk and talking about getting like a walker and having to adjust the house and like that type of thing. And it, opened up like a whole different level of like grieving and uh, 
just like realization for him, I think, like he always knew what was happening, but we definitely had a few moments where it was just like, wow, we've like escaped like really hard uh, disability for a really long time. And now this may be here to stay. And so we need to like process that. Um, So it was really hard on the relationship from that standpoint, like, but like he's so compassionate and understanding that part wasn't hard. You mentioned the the feeling of feeling like you were a burden on your mm-hmm. friends and on your loved ones. This is a very common feeling. I felt this as well. Um, and it, for me, it, it took a really long time to kind of come to terms with the fact that my illness was not my fault. And th- that took at least, you know, a decade, maybe two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> to get to the point where I could sort of uh, compartmentalize what was happening to my body and the things that I wanted to be doing and to say, okay, well, what I want to do is on pause for right now. Doesn't mean it's never going to happen. Um, and that what I was supposed to do with, you know, my partner is not happening today, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen tomorrow. And this isn't my fault. You know, it took me a really long time to kind of let go of the guilt of, you know, changing plans all the time due to health. Mm-hmm. Has, has that something that's shifted for you over the years? Definitely. But it, like you, it took a long time. From the moment I was diagnosed, it it was like, it was problematic. I don't want to go into too many details, but it was clear that I was like a problem and a burden. Just also the way society and everything is set up. It's not really like primed for people with disabilities to like make you feel empowered and great about yourself. And so <laughs> that just like just compounded everything. And I spent a lot of time like just feeling broken, feeling like I was a problem and a burden. Um, And it wasn't until I like finally stepped back, like I think it was around 10 years after being diagnosed, like looked back on like the past 10 years and like everything I had made it through, everything, uh, all the times I didn't think I was going to survive or like, and all the things I've accomplished and like how far I've able been able to like go with this illness that it was like, I am not a problem. Like who, what, who am I kidding? Like, <laughs> look at all this shit I could do. Like, it's fine. Um, and I like, I'm never going to be thrilled about it, but I can also like focus on other things that I can control and stop focusing on how much of a problem I think I am when I have all this evidence of the past showing me that like it can overcome problems and I'm strong and can persevere and all those things. Yeah, totally. What about your mental health journey? You mentioned, you know, therapy and um, antidepressants uh, to kind of get you through when you were first diagnosed. And I know that, you know, mental health is a lifelong practice. So where are you at now with all of these things? Yeah. I've always kind of gone like gone on and off with antidepressants and therapy right now. I'm doing both again. Um, for me, I think that that's the best like combination, um, mental health wise overall, like good for the most part. I think it's interesting to sit back and think about like the last 17 years and what, I was so worried about and stuff at the time of diagnosis and those years following that versus now. Um, And also just seeing like the toll that like having to constantly be worrying about like, not worrying, but like thinking about your body and your illness and everything takes. And so like, I think that's the hardest part now mental health wise is just like I'm getting a little sick of it (laughs) and like (laughs) yeah it's just yeah it's just like uh again like with this why 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 (laughs) yeah absolutely and it's something that you have no control over when it's gonna rear its head and it will be with you forever and it's it's you know for most people, if they get really sick of something, they can just stop doing it. <laughs> you can't stop yep. having MS. It's it's so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's weird because there's, it's, it's harder because it's more frustrating because it like keeps happening. Yeah. <laughs> but then it's also like easier in that I have been through a lot and I know that like, this is just, 
the normal ebbs and flows of living with illness and like this down period is going to end eventually it always does and so like you do have the advantage of like you know perspective and lived experience as the years go on but it's hard in a different way yeah during your period when mobility was a challenge did you uh pick up any mobility aids i mean you mentioned it was about five weeks long so i don't know if that's uh long enough to get into you know walkers wheelchairs canes all that sort of stuff but are those tools that you have on hand not right now i so the thing with the relapses is that like your body does have the ability to like bounce back. And so I wanted to see how it would bounce back before like investing in anything. Sure. And I was good enough to like get around the house and I wasn't really like going out except to a doctor's appointment. So like it was fine. Um, and so I haven't tried too much with those things. I did a lot of like physical therapy exercises and stuff during those five weeks to like work on components of walking and like trying to recondition myself yeah with my disease i spent about two years needing a wheelchair and it was a really mm. hard thing to admit to myself i i actually had needed yeah. it for years before then i was using a cane and was just not doing much um but then the mm -hmm. wheelchair just opened up all these possibilities of things that i could do yeah. and it was just such a great experience um so you know i've become such a a wheelchair fan. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what you always hear from people with mobility aids. It's like it actually opens up the world to you. Yeah. And like it, there's nothing, you know, to be ashamed of. Absolutely. It. Yeah. There's like a mental barrier to yeah. and a societal barrier. But mm -hmm. those barriers can be overcome. And the benefit is like fa far outweighs any downside of those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Tell me about the medication that you use. Have you switched medications over the years? I know there's been, you know, progress in how medications are administered, going from you know, having to do shots at home to being able to take a pill, something like that. Tell me about yeah. your medication journey. Yeah. Um, so the medicine for MS is a little bit different in that it's not like, you know, when you have a headache and you take an Advil and it just like fixes it. <laughs> <laughs> and so the medicine for MS is more of a long-term thing and it's made to minimize like the amount of relapses you have, the amount of lesions you have develop over time and thus like minimizes your, your disability accumulation over the course of the illness. So, um, that said, when I was diagnosed, there were only four medicines and they were all injectables, like you mentioned. And then um, over time, uh, especially after like 2007 or eight, like medicines really started coming out very frequently. And it was like there were pills and then there were infusions and just all these options. And now there's over 25. Wow. Um, yeah. So I've been on eight and wow. the reason is, yeah. But I'm kind of an, an anomaly because I came, like I grew up with MS during that phase, medicines kept getting approved. And so if something would happen where like I couldn't tolerate side effects or maybe I had a relapse or something, it was like, well, let's try something else because there may be another one that works better for you. And so I ended up switching quite a bit. Um, and so I'm on my eighth one now and, uh, I recently switched because of that relapse in January um, to one that's a little bit more, it's studied in people with secondary progressive. So um, I just personally felt like it was a good choice for me, but the medicines that are available now are things that I could like only have dreamed of when I was 19. Cause that was something like, you know, when you're diagnosed, like people will try to just say whatever to comfort you and like, oh, it's going to be okay. There's going to be medicines. There's going to be a cure soon. You'll be all right. And it's just, you're sitting there like, this isn't helpful at all. Like I know about drug development. Like I'm, I was studying pharmaceutical sciences at the time. Like I know how long this takes. Like mm -hmm. this is not going to, there's not going to be any new medicines anytime soon. And so to look back in like 17 short years to have like 20 plus more medicines is just kind of crazy. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I remember back in college when 
Lauren first started medicine and it came in these vials that were shipped yeah. in this, you know, temperature controlled package. Mm -hmm. And it was like green and looks kind of like, you know, venom from the Batman franchise. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like horrific to have to inject. And I, she was just really struggling to, to do it at all, you know, to yeah. force yourself to stab yourself with this stuff that was like painful going in and made her yeah. feel horrible as it would kind yeah. of get into her body. And the idea of having to do it all the time was just, you know, was also horrific. And just hearing now that there's just a pill, you know, like that's I know. so different. So I, I totally hear what you're saying about like you could only dream of having these type of um, this type of progress with the medication. Uh, but it also sounds like to figure out which one is the best for you, there's this trial and error that you have to go through. But then you're also dealing with a disease that kind of has, you know, that is on a random period where it's like, yeah. uh, you don't know if, well, maybe I'm flaring up because I tried this new medication or maybe I was going to flare up today no matter what. Uh, so trying to figure out what's happening in your body and how the medication is affecting you and whether or not you're on the right medication must be extremely difficult and infuriating. Yeah, it can be hard. Um for me, and I, I mean, I hope for most people, I think like relapses are really severe and they're when like new or worsening symptoms last for 24 to 48 hours and they tend to like really affect your functioning. Like you're not going to miss a relapse. Um, so there's those, but then there's also like what you were kind of mentioning, like the natural ebb and flow of like you know, your symptoms may be flaring and like worse one day. Um, and it's like, well, is the medicine working? Is it not? But the way they really evaluate that is like by relapses. And if mm. you have, um, you know, a relapse, which your doctor will be very aware about because you should contact them. <laughs> um, and then they also will do MRIs like six months after starting a medicine to make sure there's not any new lesions because you can have lesions develop without any outward symptoms and so that's really like the judgment of like if a medicine's working or not and so it is hard to you know have to be taking something and maybe it's something you don't like taking maybe it is an injection and you have to do it for like six months before you know if it's working or not for me like looking back on the last 17 years and knowing that I've been on medicine the whole time, like, I'm just so, this is going to sound weird, but I'm very grateful because I can't imagine where I would be without like the scientific advancements that have been made with MS. And like, while it's frustrating to not know if a medicine's like working immediately or like there may still be breakthrough, like relapses and stuff. Um, just knowing that the majority of my relapses have been less severe, it's proof enough to me that the medicine's like working fine, even if it, I did have to like switch from it. Like I've been able to per, like hold on to as much function as possible, I yeah. think. Compared to the generation before of people with MS that like have very limited medicine options, it's just, it's night and day really. Totally, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, you know, if I, if it were me, I'd want to be on medicine as much as possible and uh, be doing as much as I could to mitigate, you know, progression. And and speaking of progression, I think that this is something that's so difficult with any progressive disease is the uncertainty about the future. Is that something you've spent some time pondering? Yes, um, definitely. And I mean, the relapse in January brought up a lot, too, because you know, like I like gardening and we live on a lot of land and like a lot of my hobbies and working out, like all include being active. And when you can't be as active as you want or in the ways you want, it can be really frustrating and scary. And so that brought up a lot of emotions. Um, but the one thing that I always go back to with like fear of the future is like, okay, you're worrying about something that literally everyone worries about. Like no one knows what the future holds, regardless of if they have an illness or not. Like it's just, you could be here one minute and not the next, like it, life is life. And so 
I could either like devote a bunch of time and energy to panicking about that or, um, you know, do what I can in the moment to make sure I'm taking care of myself and my body and my mind in the best way possible so I can set myself up for the best future possible, knowing that like I can't control everything and literally no one can control everything. So it's not like, like, yes, illness has shifted what my future may look like, but like different doesn't necessarily have to be bad. It's just amazing. That's such great advice. I love that so much. If you are beating yourself up over what might happen in the future and you're suffering in the present over something that hasn't happened yet, whether or not it happens in the future, you are doubling your suffering, you know? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. so, So true. Yeah. Learning how to exist in a state that is happy is very difficult (laughs) for everyone and with a chronic illness there are added challenges to that but you know the more time you can spend in the present and be content and be grateful and and find joy you know uh, that will accumulate into making you feel better overall and like your life is better overall and we all need to work at that and it doesn't matter if you have an illness or a disability or not we all need to work at that Um, And those skills can only benefit you in the long run. Yeah. Tell me about the things that work for you as someone with, with MS who, you know, you live for years with relapsing, remitting, and now you've been re-diagnosed with secondary progressive. Mm. What are, what are the things that you incorporate in your daily life? You know, diet, exercise, we've talked a lot about medication, but what, what are the practical daily things that you would recommend for someone living with MS? A lot of it are things that like I've learned through trial and error for myself. So what I recommend for people is to like try tracking their symptoms and, you know, seeing if there's any triggers or things you can find that help them. And then obviously do more of the things that help and less of the things that are triggers. Um, And it does take a lot of time to figure out because also chronic illness has a mind of its own. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you didn't do anything wrong and your body's just pissed off. <laughs> um, but tracking has been really helpful. So I did that early on for years um, and just kind of kept an eye on like how much sleep I was getting and what amount was like a good range where I would wake up feeling rested and not more tired. And so like for me, that's like seven to nine hours a night. But if I get over nine, then I'm just like dragging the whole day. So it's a balance. And then with diet, I, you know, like started eating a healthier, like more well-balanced diet, similar to like the Mediterranean diet initially. And then I started paying attention to like, how I felt after having snacks. What about after meals? Um, How did I feel after eating like bread or dairy or whatever? Um, And I kind of customized like my own little diet that works for me and like what like makes my stomach the happiest because I don't really, I've studied nutrition and I really don't believe like in doing good or bad foods, like, especially with a chronic illness, it's like, you have this for the rest of your life, you need to figure out a way to like, not deprive yourself of something you enjoy, if like, you know, it helps you. And so like, like, I love sweets. So I'm not going to not have sweets, even if sometimes they make me feel crappy. And so it's all about just like finding a balance. And doing it like having a treat when you need one and then sticking to the your normal way of eating when you need to um so diet was important i personally don't do dairy or wheat but i don't recommend that for anyone like i recommend people to figure out their own like dietary things um i do that because of my own gi stuff um stress wise like it's I've just learned like ways to minimize stress over the years, like looking at what type of emotion I'm feeling and then figuring out what I can do to like help it. So like if I'm angry, I know I need to like get outside or I need to do like progressive muscle relaxation to help like channel some of that energy or, you know, if I'm sad or anxious, like writing for me sometimes helps just to get stuff out of my head. Um, 
and things like that. So managing stress is another huge one. Um, what else? Why am I blanking? Duh, working out. <laughs> um, fitness is another huge one. But that's kind of like diet where it's like you need to figure out how it works in your life for you in a sustainable way. So like for me, I like to do strength training. And I know that like some days my body's just not up to it. Like today I was going to do something and I'm like, eh, I think I'm just going to like park a little bit farther away on my errands and get some extra steps in that way instead because that feels a little bit more like approachable to me today and so for exercise it's more just like i figured out a type of movement i enjoy and i try to incorporate it when i can and just live an active lifestyle overall like within my limitations or boundaries when did you start doing public advocacy i first announced that I had MS on social media and like a lot of people around me knew, but I had never publicly announced it until 2018, I don't think. Um, and then it wasn't until like 2020, 2021, I really started like embracing my background. Like I have a background in pharmaceutical sciences and nutrition and I lived with MS for almost half my life. And I've learned a way to integrate it into my life so it doesn't rule it. And I wanted to be able to help other people that were going through like experiences similar to like the turmoil and like darkness and overwhelmed feelings that I had when I was diagnosed. And so I really started advocating and educating and sharing tips and things like that more in like 2020 and onward. Yeah. What has that brought to your life? It's just, I think filled a hole. I didn't know I had, mm. um, it's just been like, I was telling someone earlier today, it just has made my like soul so happy because I get so many nice compliments and like feedback about like oh i didn't know that or like thanks for explaining it in a way that we could understand or like you've made me feel less alone and i just got diagnosed and i was terrified and i'm not as much anymore like they're just i don't know they absolutely warm my heart and it just like has made such a big difference and it's hard to like even say how big how impactful it's been um yeah. And I'm just glad that I can like lighten someone's load after diagnosis a little bit because like back in 2005, like, you know, social media wasn't that big of a thing and it was hard to like find people like you. And so um, I just feel really grateful that I have the opportunity to do so. Yeah. I remember one, one of your videos that really hit me hard that I loved and I was so appreciative of you posting was... Uh, you know, you post a lot of great information, you're so knowledgeable, Thanks. and you talk about, um, you know, health and exercise and just the balance of living with chronic illness. But one day you just had a horrible day and you just posted, today is awful, you know, and yeah. you were very emotional and just sharing that feeling of frustration of, you know, today sucks. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was just like, yeah, you know, like I've had so many days like that. And I just related to that so much. And I was just so grateful that someone else was being vulnerable and, and posting that. Uh, so, you know, what's something I really like about your content is that it's very real. It's very raw. Thanks. And, you know, a lot of days it is very uplifting and positive. And then there are days where it is just, you know, having MS is not great. <laughs> I don't yeah. love it. You know? um, no, totally. And that's real. And that, you know, I... I think that, that it's so important to to acknowledge that reality. I could not agree with you more. Like, I, that was the piece, like, another piece that I felt like was missing because it's like you have a lot of positivity in this space and that's wonderful and it serves its time and place. But, like, if you're not in that mental space, then you just end up feeling more like a problem and a burden mm. than you did before. And like, why is this so hard for me? But that person's like living their life and having the best time ever. And it's like, you got to show, you know, the good and the bad, because it's also the bad that makes the good so good. 
Like, yeah, you know, that they're both necessary to fully enjoy life. Absolutely. What is the good? What has MS brought to your life? And I know that there are good things about having chronic illness. I know that it does change you in ways that are good. So what has that been for you? It's definitely made me more empathetic and more like just shifting my perspective. Like I, I don't see as much in black and white anymore. And it's like a lot of gray space, like a lot of like, let's ask questions first and then <laughs> figure it out. Cause things aren't just this or that. Um, and so I appreciate that it's kind of broadened my perspective as a whole. Um, for myself, like it's helped me, you know, take care of my body and like know the importance of health. Like, I don't know how I would be like eating or sleeping or managing my stress and everything if I didn't absolutely have to do it. <laughs> mm. Being able to like embrace the gray has been like, I think the greatest gift because like nothing in life is black and white and everyone acts like everything is. <laughs> and it's like, I just like that, you know, it's opened up this different um, and more realistic like view of the world. Yeah, totally. I have one more question for you. Yeah. Um, I love asking this. So if you could go back in time and meet with 19 year old Sam, <laughs> and give her a message from the future of, you know, considering everything you've learned about how to live with your disease and the things that it's going to bring to your life and the ups and downs that are going to happen. Is there any piece of advice you think you could give to yourself at 19 years old that would have been helpful? I don't know if she would have listened. <laughs> but uh, I can actually like 100% tell you she won't. She wouldn't have listened. But um probably would be to ignore what everyone else says. <laughs> like if they don't have a chronic illness, don't listen to them. Because <laughs> um, there's a lot of like faulty advice or things that are said that just end up like making you not happy. And I think I took a lot of that on. So I would have told her to not listen to anyone and to trust yourself and that like, you'll be fine and you'll figure it out and you'll make it through. Just keep going. Yeah. And you're not a burden and you have value. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so many people, so many people are going to tell you, Oh, just do yoga. You know? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yoga, celery juice, vitamins. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. And, or they like, or their um, eyes like completely shift and mm. all of a sudden you're like this injured like puppy and mm. their eyes are like all sympathetic and like just make you feel like you're like a huge problem. Um, yeah. yeah. And so like I, that, that was the one that like, I think I always internalized was just like, Oh no, I'm making this person sad with my reality. <laughs> yeah. What great advice. Don't take that on. You know, don't, yeah. don't take that on yourself. That's great advice. And it's really hard, you know, for someone mm -hmm. who travels through the world with empathy and wants other people to be happy when you feel like your existence is making other people sad, it is hard not to internalize that and think, oh, I guess my life is sad, you know, and that's just yeah. not real. Your life is unique and everyone has challenges and this is your challenge and you are learning to live with it in the best way possible. And what other people think about it, other people who have no experience, doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter. And you learning, said it perfect. Yeah, learning mm -hmm. how to separate yourself from that is extremely empowering. And that is great advice. Sam, amazing yeah. job on the podcast today. What a great conversation. I've loved talking to you so much. Um, it's so cool to get to, to know you a little bit and to hear your story. And you've said so many things that are so incredibly valuable. And I'm thrilled to be able to share this on this platform. So anyone else out there who's, you know, dealing with MS, who's looking to hear from another human being living with a disease can, <laughs> can come here and hear this. 
it's just out there and available and i'm i you know it just does so much good to to be open the way you are and to share like this thank you so much please tell us where people can go to connect with you online if anyone's looking to check out your content or you know find you on instagram anything like that yeah well thank you for having me this has been amazing um and then if you want to hear more about more of me um <laughs> you can find me on TikTok or instagram the handle is s is in sam l is in lee s is in sam a l b a g g i o so s l s salvaggio um and then if you want to check out my website where you can subscribe to like my newsletter and I have a blog with a lot of other uh, information and helpful stuff, it's samanthasalvaggio.com. Awesome. And that's everything. Great. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put a link to your website in the show notes of this episode. And I always tag guests on TikTok and Instagram. So I'll do so as well. If people are looking for a quick way to, if you're, if you follow the major pain podcast, you'll have a quick and easy way to link over to Sam's pages. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, Sam, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been such a joy to talk to you today. Same. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Pain Podcast.